This is uh, David Cullen on Guitar Tales. This is a really exciting episode. We have Stacy Weidlitz. Did I, I got your name right, right? Yes, very good. So I told you, I, I, I could have chatted with you a long time before we started because it was already so much fun. But the first thing I said to you, I, I've got a lot of notes about you here. And we have in one paragraph over here, which I absolutely love, you've worked with Edgar Winter, Ray Manzarek, and Anne Bancroft. And I, I yes. guess. And well, Ray Manzarek, I didn't work with Ray Manzarek. He came to my apartment to watch me work. Wow. Which was even better in a way. You know, it's like he wanted to learn about uh, scoring work. And I was working on a show called Erie, Indiana for NBC. See, he came to watch me score the show and would occasionally ask questions. But I'll tell you the, the, the full story with him uh, as we get into it, unless you want to hear it now. It's, it's no, no, that's our little teaser. So okay. there's so much that you were famous for and successful with. But, you know, there's one that really is way up there. Um, and and uh, it's stuck in my head now because I had Alexa play it for me. And <laughs> You co-wrote um, She's Like the Wind with your really good friend, the late Patrick Swayze. Right. And um, it, it, Alexis talking. Stop, Alexis, stop. And <laughs> she's very intrusive. <laughs> but what an amazing success. And, and I, I, I read there, there's four full pages here of stuff. Look at you. Look at you when you're young right there. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it happens, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> But uh, let's start a little further back, if we can. Um, you're a keyboardist, along with being a composer, right? Yes. And actually, uh, it's funny, in this Zoom era, right. I kept experimenting with where I would set up my iPad for the Zoom meetings. Right. Uh, and I'd pile up books. And then I was looking at the piano in my living room. It's, I have a, a Baldwin Grand. And right. I realized, oh, that's the perfect height. So I'm actually sitting at the piano right now. So you can, so uh, um, it's, uh, you know, it's just funny that, and also I'm comfortable on a piano bench because of all the years spent on it. Uh, so it, and it, um, it, it just turned out to be the perfect place for doing Zoom meetings. And, and so it's great when I'm in Zoom meetings, I can actually score the meeting as it's going by, which is great. So I thought you were leading to a funny because you're at a piano, but I don't know you're at a piano, but then you could obviously play it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I do at the meetings. When somebody goes, you know, off, I'll do. Oh, that's great. Something like that. So it, it just interjects all of a sudden. Everybody's looking around like, where'd that come from? Oh, that's so, fantastic. Yeah. Now, I, I cannot fail to comment on all the... Um, the items behind you. What am I looking at there? Well, th that's actually the platinum or multi-platinum record for Dirty Dancing for the soundtrack. So that that represents 11 million records sold in the U.S. That's that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's one of the selling records of all time, let alone soundtracks. Um, you know, 10 million is what they call the 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 Diamond Award. And okay. so it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it is pretty amazing. It, it, to me, it's crazy. But, you know, what's a real testament in my mind to the quality of the writing of that song, as soon as I hear the words, she's like the wind, I hear the song in my head. I, right. I hear a lot of it in my head. And then just getting into the mood um, for today's show, I thought, oh, let me listen to it. So I had, I won't say her name, uh, but I had A-L-E-X-A -E play it. And <laughs> And now, so much the melody, the hook, the sound of the vocals, they've been stuck in my head for a couple hours now. And I suspect I'll wake up tomorrow morning and they'll still be sitting there. Yeah, yeah. it's it, it's interesting. It, you know, Patrick and I, when we wrote the song, um, we weren't, I, neither of us were really professional songwriters. My My main thing that I did in LA, in Los Angeles was, scoring work uh, or at that point i wasn't even that much into the scoring it i was writing themes for television shows okay. uh theme bumpers and stuff like that and we i think because of our inexperience we inadvertently did something 
which ended up being crucial to the success of the song, which was beginning the song with the title. Oh, okay. So that way it's automatically, like if you're hearing it on the radio, you hear that intro, which is very distinctive, yeah. and then comes in singing She's Like the Wind, and you know, oh, I know that song. And um, over the years, people have said, did you know what you were doing? You, did you know how brilliant that was? And I said, no, oh, we had it. no idea, uh, but it ended up being just a very smart thing. What was, was it mainly written on the piano or something else? Piano and guitar, um, because uh, Patrick, whom I knew, by the way, as Buddy, um, his nickname for friends and family was, was Buddy. So matter of fact, when he introduced himself to me, when I met him in his acting class, he introduced himself as Buddy. So um, he called me one day uh, and said, I have this idea for a song. I can't get anywhere with it. And he lived around the block for me. And this is so, in LA? This is in Los Angeles. Yeah. So uh, he said, do you want to work on it? He knew I was writing music for TV. So I said, yeah, sure, come on over. So he came over with his guitar um, and he had been in bands in high school and he was on Broadway in the show Grease so he could really sing. Right. And he played two chords over and over, C to E minor. And these verses that were all in the same musical form, uh, but the song began, what he had began, She's Like the Wind Through My Tree, She Rides the Night Next to Me, which I thought was very intriguing. Right. And, and then I rewrote the third and fourth line. That she, uh, she leads me through moonlight only to burn me with the sun. And, and he actually, he, when I threw that line out, he said, what does that mean? And I said, I don't care. Just write it down. And oh, that's, um, you know, that's how, you know, our, the writer's process. Right. So, uh, but um, yeah, so it was, it was a combination of him on guitar and me at the piano. I, I didn't realize, you know, I, I researched you. I didn't research enough with Patrick, I guess. Enough guitar player to be doing that. Yes, he he uh, definitely knew his way around uh, an acoustic guitar. You know, it was not a lead player or anything like that, but um, he could accompany himself singing and um, and you know just obviously very musical uh, all the way around. Yeah, I mean that that we definitely know. And then, how did you meet him? We met um, a friend of mine in. LA was a great musical comedy um, singer, actor, and uh, he knew I was a good accompanist on the piano. Um, I had actually played some auditions for him and things like that. So he called me up and he said, hey, will you come into my acting class uh, in which he was a student? I want to do a scene from um, Shenandoah, uh, this very dramatic scene, uh, and play piano for me and I'll sing it and uh, we'll rehearse it ahead of time. And I said, sure. So I went to the class and there's about probably 60, 65 students in the class, which included at the time, a young Alec Baldwin. Wow. Uh, Tom, Tom Selleck was in the class, uh, Mimi Rogers. Um, wow. uh, President, President Reagan's daughter was in the class, Patty. Yeah. Um, so it was an interesting group and it was taught by a famous teacher in LA named Milton Katselis. Okay. And so the scene went incredibly well. My friend Gary was great. And, and it turned into a whole discussion about musical theater. And the teacher drew me into the discussion because I had experience in theater and all this. And, we, and the class took a break. And uh, as I was, you know, taking my music and getting ready to leave, this guy came up to me with this kind of husky Texas drawl. And he said, right. hi, hi, I'm Buddy. You know, I really like your playing. I like what you were saying about theater. And I was looking at him and I said, you look really familiar to me. And so he said, well, did you see The Outsiders? And I said, no. And he said, did you see the show Renegades? And I said, no. And he was getting annoyed by this point. I said, um, it's not that kind of familiar. It's more like I've seen you around familiar. Hmm. And so then this blonde woman came over and he said, this is my wife, Lisa. And then it hit me and I said, okay, I know now the two of you are always working on a black 240Z on La Jolla Avenue on the weekends. And they said, yeah, how do you know that? And I said, I live right around the block from you. I said, I live 
two houses away from you. And wow. so, and I was living with my girlfriend, Wendy, who sings on the song, Wendy Fraser. And um, the four of us became fast friends and we'd hang out and talk about music and theater and dance. And I had a background um, in music working with dance as well. So that was interesting to them. So it, uh, it just turned into this, you know, kind of organic friendship and then the musical collaboration. I, I love the picture you just painted. First of all, I always loved the 240Z. Everyone knows the 280Z. That was a great right. picture. You know, a little... Oh, beautiful car. You're absolutely. It's, it's a classic design. Better than the 300. I think the 300, they started losing their, uh, their signature look. But the 240 was like, it was a cool little car. Yeah, um, it, looked, it looked like a, almost like a, a Porsche, not the best known Porsche, but the one that came a little later on or uh, in the 80s. So yeah. it, it was it was a great car. You know, we see these the specials, you know, like uh, what, what's the Canyon Road where the Mamas and the Papas and all of them were collaborating? Um, not Cannon Doom Road. It's, you know, no, they, no, no they, were, they were off of Laurel Canyon. Yeah, yeah. Laurel Canyon. Right. So I'm picturing you, I, you know, I've been to L.A. more than a handful of times, and I just picture these young, struggling, but getting successful artists and, and, and sort of th this wonderful, happy Petri dish of people connecting yeah. with the class and then the neighborhood and having real discussions, not just about how will I be successful, but how can I better create? And right. I'm yeah, there were a lot of artistic discussions. Um, uh, in Buddy's, Buddy and Lisa's acting class, the one I described, there was another student there who was a great dancer named Nicholas Gunn, who had been with the Paul Taylor Dance Company. And the three of them got into discussions after class, and that turned into a theater piece uh, that they presented in the mid-1980s called uh, Without a Word, and they brought me in on that. And so I wrote music for that and played live in the performances. And that turned into a big thing where Gene Kelly came to see it and Liza Minnelli and all this. And that's probably 85 or 86. And this but it was right uh, before Dirty Dancing, right? Yeah. Well, Dirty yeah, Dancing was, was earlier, wasn't it? But yeah, he, Dirty Dancing was shot in 86, uh, the fall of 1986. Right, but you so, wrote a song in 84. Pat. Right. Okay, yeah. I got getting my timeline right. Okay. So when, so when you guys like, all the four of you sit around in someone's house or apartment and, and just talk about the creative process and, and the interaction between the music and the dance and the acting and the content of lyrics, like those sort of late night, really cool artistic discussions. Yeah, but it, there was a lot of silliness also. Oh. Um, but Buddy and I were um, jokesters. Okay. And we were constantly making jokes at each other's expense. Good. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, sometimes playing jokes on each other. Um, one of my favorites is uh, later, you know, talk about cars. I ended up buying a white Corvette okay. and I was post dirty dancing and I was so excited. And I knew that, you know, Buddy was a big sports car. By this point, he had a DeLorean and um, I uh, uh, called him and left a message on his machine uh, saying, um, you know, I'm so excited. I bought a sports car. I bought a Corvette. Can't wait for you to see it. Hung up, took the car out for a drive, came home. There was a message on my machine that said, and it was his voice that said, you didn't buy a sports car. You bought a 15-foot fiberglass penis extension. And then he hung up. <laughs> so it was very funny. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. And, and yeah, the DeLorean was a cool car. But the Vets back then, they were, I mean, they're still great. Oh, yeah, it was a great car. It was a wonderful car. They, they had the 450 in there, right? Yes, it was ridiculously powerful. Yeah, it was just a crazy engine. The car weighed about three pounds, right? Right, right. Well, the, it was fiberglass also. So yeah. it's, you know, uh, but it, it was great. It was, it was a lot of fun. So in the mid-80s, right around when you got that, my brother got the 1986 or 87 Buick Grand National that huh. beat the Corvette that year. Yeah, that was that was their the Buick muscle car. Yeah, it was so, it was an ugly Monte Carlo looking car with right, exactly. like 450 in it of, or bigger. I forget how big it was, but it had some gigantic engine. Yeah, uh, that's funny. Yeah. So so 
I want to go back a little before 1983-84 when you're meeting Patrick. So let's start. I'm going to start you quickly in high school. Um, are you a musician yet? Oh, yeah. I started um, playing clubs when I was 15. Wow. Uh, actually joined the musicians union when I was 15. Um, I was a year underage, um, but I was beginning to get work in union you know, like the, the catering halls on Long Island, the right. wedding and bar mitzvah circuit. And uh, so my parents and I went into Manhattan to local 802 to the headquarters. And, uh, you know, we said, you know, he, they, they said he wants to join the union. They're looking at me saying, how old is he? And so I said, well, I'm 15. They said, well, you have to be at least 16. I said, but I'm getting this work. And so what am I supposed to do? And I, I want to join, pay my dues and all that. And so it was very funny. The guy's looking at me and he said, what are the notes in a G dominant seven chord? And I said, G, B, D, and F natural. And he said, okay, you're in. Oh, that's and so uh, that, that, that was my, uh, and I've been in the union since then. Now it's actually um, local 47. I'm still in the LA union. That, so but when, yeah, I, go on. Yeah, so when you're tooling around, in, in Long Island, and, and we talked beforehand, I, I have relatives there, so I have an affinity in my heart for Long Island. Um, would you cross paths with Billy, or was he already sort of out of town by then? Billy, Billy Joel, Joel, you mean? Yeah. He uh, was mid-80s. He was probably out of town in National at that point. But, well, I mean, Billy Joel is what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yes, uh, I crossed paths with him in certain ways because most of his band was from the same town I was from. Okay. Uh, uh, Russell Jabbers, Doug Stegmeyer, and their early on guitarist, Howie Emerson, who I'm still in touch with. Okay. Um, they were in a band with a drummer from Seaford, Long Island, named Liberty DeVito. That's and, a cool uh, and they had a band called Topper. Okay. And I used to go to see them with musician friends of mine. They were a great band. And they were playing in a club in Farmingdale. And one day, Billy Joel came into the club and, you know, he'd had the hit with Piano Man, but not much else since then. Okay. But he sat and listened to them for two hours, then got up and did a couple of songs with them. And when they were finished, he hired them as his backup band. And they stayed for a very long time. And I used to play some clubs with Liberty, the drummer. Uh, and um, so I remember going to hear Billy Joel at... Uh, um, Hofstra University. Uh, this was in support of the uh, uh, the album that had uh, "Say Goodbye to Hollywood" and "New York State of Mind." Turnstiles was the record. Oh, yeah. All right, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I met him backstage and all this. And he had been playing a, a club in my town also uh, when he was in a band called the Hassles. Okay. And so uh, there, there was this. I was you know, like a, a good deal younger than he yeah. was. So, but there was this, I was still kind of inching into that world when I was about 11 or 12 years old of musicians on Long Island. And, um, and my town turned out some great musicians besides the guys from um, Billy Joel's band. I'm still great friends with a drummer named Rod Morgenstein, who was uh, the drummer from the Dixie Dregs and then Winger. Oh. And he's one of the monster drummers of all time. Um, I think Rolling Stone rated him as the 17th or 18th greatest drummer in the world, something like yeah. that. Didn't the drugs so, sort of merge with Kansas a little bit? No, they... what happened was when the Dregs initially broke up, Steve Morse, that's right. one of the founders and guitarists from the Dregs, joined Kansas. That's what it was. Okay, yeah. That, but all phenomenal, like just off the charts, good musicians. Everybody. Well, both oh, they're Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, so you're so you're in high school, uh, even God, you're in middle school doing this stuff, and um, yeah, that's crazy. Um, and then high school, um, you're I would imagine you're really taking off by the end of high school, right? Well, yeah, because I, you know, again, still playing the clubs. Um, I was also in my senior year of high school, the accompanist for the choir, and I learned a great deal doing that. Um, and I was studying from two different teachers at once, uh, one for pop music, the other for classical music. And uh, although I was a terrible practicer, my classical teacher knew that uh, concert 
pianist was not my destiny. But, um, and I was getting, I was really into blues improvisation and, and the band that I was in was not a rock band. Uh, it was a lounge band. It was sax, piano, bass, and drums. So wow. we played, you know, Girl from Ipanema and Satin Doll and Standards. And that turned out to be a great training ground, just playing those songs out of a fake book with just the chord charts it's how you learn song structures, doing stuff like that. It sort of seeps into you. You're, you're, you're a musical lifetime learner, I suspect, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's always something to learn in, in music. It's it's uh, it's nonstop. And then, so there comes a time, and, and I might be jumping too fast because I haven't figured out, I haven't asked when you were in high school versus when you meet Patrick, but at some point um, you, you switch coasts, right? Yeah, yeah what happened was, um, I met this singer uh, named Wendy Fraser. We were both uh, involved with a, a cabaret show in New York City. I as the pianist, it was a full band, but I was playing piano. She was one of the backup singers. And then we started dating and then we started living together. And her father uh, was a television producer on the West Coast. And um, he came to New York to visit and I met him and I played him stuff that, by this point, I was writing music for a, a studio in Connecticut. Okay. Uh, industrial shows, jingles, things like that. I started working, doing work with them when I was 19. And um, so this is now in my early 20s and maybe 20, 24 or so. And I played him some music that I was doing for those shows. And, uh, and he really liked me. He says, this, this is really good. And then he gave Wendy and I an opportunity to submit a theme for a new TV show that he was working on. But his caveat was, I'm not giving it to you. You have to earn it. He said, I have to like what you come up with. My wife has to like it because she's co-producing. Um, the star has to like it and the syndicator has to like it. And if you can uh, satisfy everybody, then you've got it. And so, and everything else you had to earn. Right. So Wendy and I uh, came up with something that we liked. She turned out to be just a naturally talented writer besides being a great singer. Um, and then also later found out she was great ears in the studio. So we called uh, her father on the West Coast and I sat at the piano and she sang the melody kind of do, 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 do. And uh, he, there was this pause and he said, wow, that's really good. So then he put his wife on the phone. She said, that's really good. And then uh, we sent them a cassette and he called me uh, a few days later and said, okay, we booked you on a flight uh, to LA uh, next week. And we're putting the, the band together, uh, which included the great James Gadsden on drums, who's a monster drummer. And uh, the show was the Richard Simmons show. Wow. And, and that show, you know, at first it was, you know, it's like I'm 24 years old and it's like, all right, it's a syndicated show. It's on at nine o'clock in the morning. Nobody's going to watch this. But it was five days a week and it became right. this, this hit show. It was a mainstay. I remember. Yeah, so so what have, Wendy and I started talking and we realized that to really... Um, to really build on the success of that show and what yeah. we did with it, that we had to move to Los Angeles, which I, I frankly did not want to do. I, I did not, I'd been to LA a couple of times before, once during fire season when ashes were falling out of the sky. And I said, this is like Pompeii, you know, they're gonna find us in 5,000 years buried yeah. under these ashes. But, it, but we made the move and um, not expecting to work for another you know, at least six months to a year. But within three weeks after moving there, we booked another theme uh, for um, Regis Philbin's first talk show before the big one that he had with Regis and Kathy Lee. He had a, a show on NBC and we wrote the theme for that as well. You have all, like, if I were to put you on the spot and say, you know, give us the first um, for the Richard Simmons show, would you know it off the top of your head or would you have to look up the music? remember it oh i could play it right now I, I i remember everything that we did you know I or, or i've done I, 
Yes. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I should play it or not for copyright reasons. You know, who knows who? No, you no. Know. Okay. Yeah. But yes, I, I could play it for you right now. Wow. That's pretty cool. So then, all right. So then you do one on, um, what do you call it? So then, then you do the next show, uh, which is region. Right. And then, right. And, and he, he was, even if it wasn't his big show, he was, he was a rising star back then. Well, he had, he was already a star because he was Joey Bishop's sidekick on the Joey oh. Bishop on, um, I believe that was either CBS or ABC. Okay. So everybody knew who he was and he was a pitch man also. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, yeah, so by the time he had his own uh, morning, you know, daytime show, he was already recognizable. But I think teaming him with Kathy Lee for his later show made the the magic yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah. So so you got that. So then what was the next success that you saw? Um, well, the thing with L.A. is you get typed and you get pigeonholed. So right. Wendy and I, you know, we were constantly being put in, you know, writing themes for daytime shows. We did one for Rona Barrett. Uh, we did, you know, yeah, we did some other things. And I really wanted to move. My goal was doing the scoring work, writing to picture with, you know, dramatic music to picture. And I tried getting an agent. And what I would hear from them was, oh, we don't represent composers that do what you do. And I said, well, but I'm working and making money. And they said, well, you know, and I, and I said, well, you know, at least listen to the music. And then again, they would say, well, it's more than just the music. We have to see what you can do with a piece of film. And I said, well, how do I show you what I can do with a piece of film unless I have an agent who can get me a film? And their answer was, you have to figure that out. And so uh, it took five years of trying to finally get an agent and I got a, a good one. But my, we started to do some nighttime shows as well. And one of them was, um, I think it was either ABC or NBC did a revival of That Was The Week That Was, the satirical um, political show from the 1960s that was hosted by David Frost. So big, He's been a big deal for 200 years, it seems. Like, he's yeah, just yeah. I, I think he started somewhere in the late 1700s. I'm not sure. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but, um, so that was fun. And it was writing, you know, bumpers in and out. But then they also put me in as, as music director for the show. And so I got a call. Uh, and so the, the special that they were doing, the pilot, uh, was, co was with David Frost, but then co-hosted by Anne Bancroft. And so I got a call from the producers saying, uh, we're, Anne's going to do a song. We're writing a spoof of the song Trees, which is a song version of the poem Trees by Joyce Kilmer. And uh, was a whole thing about acid rain, and it began. I think that soon we'll never see a poem lovely as a tree, and uh, so they said. And the way we're going to do it is, Anne's going to be on camera. You'll be right off camera at the piano playing for her. And I said, "Well, that's great." And they said, "Yeah." And she wants to rehearse with you at her house, which and I knew, you know, she was married to Mel Brooks, who's my absolute one of my heroes. Yeah. And so, so I said, okay, great. So, you know, like a few days later, I go to this beautiful home in uh, Brentwood off of Sunset Boulevard. Okay. And uh, Anne answers the, do this door, the door holding a dog back. And what immediately surprised me was that she had the strongest New York accent you could imagine. And she said, don't mind the dog. And I looked at her and I said, where are you from? And she said, I'm from the Bronx. And so I said, I'm from Long Island. And I said, my whole family's from Brooklyn. She said, well, my husband's from Brooklyn. I said, so it was immediately like, you know, this old home week. And, you know, she was like, do you want some coffee? And, uh, but she was the nicest person. Uh, and then I came up with an idea for the, that I pitched to the producers, which I said, so it's, it's just going to be her on stage and the piano. And so they said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, what if you had some trees on stage, but it's a barbershop quartet disguised as trees. And at some point they lean in and start singing with her, like, oh, like this. And they're looking at me and say, 
That's great. So they hired a barbershop quartet and put them in tree outfits. And so you see these things standing there and all of a sudden they start singing with her. And it was a, a great segment. It was, it was really fun. Uh, and then I used to run into her in the grocery store and uh, we'd talk and, um, and then I met her husband a few years later. So that was, that was great. That is great. Yeah. And, and that, was, that was right when he was just as big as big could be. I mean, he's still huge, but he had that yeah. trilogy of uh, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, and Spaceballs. Spaceballs, uh, silent movie, uh, silent movie. High yeah. anxiety. Actually, he and I talked about high anxiety when when we met. So uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that uh, was, he made a whole big deal. I remember in that, I, I heard an interview with him where he talked about how important it was for him to have the microphone with a with a cable coming out because he made it a prop. That's that's exactly what we talked about. That's so funny that you bring that up because. Um, when I, I, I was up for a score, it was down to me and two other composers for the movie, The Fly 2, which oh. he wasn't directing, but he was producing. And he so that's why, yeah, he did a lot of stuff like that. He, he produced the first version of The Fly with uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum also, the first iteration. I've never done uh, Yeah. So we're sitting in this, and you know, talk about Brooklyn. It turned out he was from Brownsville, Brooklyn, which is where my parents were from. Okay. And, it, and I said, you know, I, I worked with your wife a few years ago. And uh, he said, uh, I, I told him the show. And he said, I was in the audience. I said, I know you yelled out at her at one point. You, you, you uh, berated her for pronouncing Ronald Reagan's name wrong because she said Reagan. And he yelled out from the audience, it's Reagan. Who says Reagan? And everybody was hysterical. <laughs> so. And he, when I was talking to him, he said, who says Regan? But we were talking about, and I said, you know, one scene that I relate to is from High Anxiety because it's in the piano bar. Yeah. And it's so funny because I used to play piano bars. So it was funny to me. And I said, but there's a moment where you take the microphone cable and you crack it like a whip. And he started laughing. He said, I saw Bobby Darren in Las Vegas do that. Oh, and so he said, Bobby Darren's on stage and he took the microphone cable and cracked it like a whip and everybody went and he said I felt Mel said that he fell on the floor laughing hysterically and just thought to himself someday I'm going to use that and so that's that's what prompted that scene in uh, high anxiety he, he, I think at one point he throws it over his shoulder he just he just yeah. so over the top yeah Isaac. well even even the way he begins it because he uh, turns to the pianist and he says, uh, do you know high anxiety? And the pianist says, uh, what key? And Mel Brooks says, who knows from key, just play. So it's a very, very funny, very funny scene. That's such an iconic scene. And, it, and it's so subtle. Yeah, yeah. It does a good absorbing it. High anxiety. Yeah, high anxiety. So it was great. Yeah, it's, very, it's, it's a little Tony Bennett-ish. In a yeah, while. yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but I got to sit and talk with him for like I didn't get the movie, right. uh, because I was up against a couple of heavyweights. But I to be able to sit and talk with Mel Brooks for an hour and a half, one on one, it's I, I call it the greatest rejection I ever had. So it's it's was just a, a wonderful, memorable experience. So that so we got that. Um, so so I know we're leading up to the huge thing. So what's what's next for you? What what is your next success where you, you landed a gig and you either scored or, or composed? Well, what happened? Mel Brooks. I was actually 1988. So that's oh okay. Um, so I was still trying to get an agent. I was you know, and I was studying scoring at uh, evening classes at UCLA. They had a great program for working um, composers uh, on the mechanics of film scoring and conducting to picture and things like that. <clears throat> so a music supervisor on a show that I did uh, said to me, he said, you know, look for a really good student film from either UCLA or USC, one of the graduate films, because usually they're pretty good quality. And if you land a good one, and do a great score for it, 
everybody in the industry will see it because the director will be using it as his or her showpiece. Right, right. And you can be doing the same thing and your name will get around. And he said, start looking in the uh, paper drama log because that's where they'll advertise right. um, certain time of the year. So I started checking out drama log and I saw an ad that said um, a score needed for um, classic 1950s suspense horror short uh, UCLA graduate film. Um, uh, please send tape and resume to uh, UCLA and it said care of a uh, chicken thing and uh, all this. So suspense, that, that's exactly the genre that I wanted to do. I mean, it's like I knew every 1950s horror film. Um, you know, I knew all the Bernard Herman stuff and all those great chord patterns that they would use where it's like, you know, it's like an instant, uh, instant horror film. So, um, uh, so I got a call from this direct director of the short, whose name was uh, Todd Holland. And uh, he said, I really like uh, the music you sent me. Um, I'd like to screen the, the film for you at UCLA, uh, the work print, the black and white work print. And so we met at UCLA and he sat about four rows behind me, which is an intimidation trick. And um, uh, he showed me the film and it didn't have any temp music. It didn't have the sound effects yet, but it had all these visual effects that he had built. He spent three years on this movie. Wow. And it was unbelievable. There may be two lines of dialogue in the whole 12 minute film. And which meant that he was telling the story visually, which is very hard to do. And I was stunned. And when it was over, I turned to him and I said, I have to do this movie. And he said to me, he said, what do you mean, why? And I said, first, it's great. Second, I know exactly how to handle this movie. This is right up my alley. Right. And so then we started talking and he said, well, I'm interviewing other composers. How would you actually mechanically do the score? Because the other composers are talking about putting together student musicians for a small orchestra. And I looked at him and I said, that'll sound like crap. I, I said, I have this machine at home, which was the state-of-the-art uh, sampler called the Emulator 2. And I said, everything that you heard on the tape that I sent you is from the Emulator 2 and a few other synthesizers I use. Um, why don't you come to my apartment uh, sometime within the next couple of days and I will demonstrate what this machine is capable of because it can do strings, it can do pipe organ, harp, uh, piano, all these different things. And I said, we can layer it on a 24 track tape recorder and build the score. So he came over a couple of days later and I showed him how the machine works. But what he didn't know was the night before I sat at the piano, still thinking about the film and I wrote the theme for Chicken Thing and, uh, and didn't tell him. So he, you know, after I demonstrated the emulator, which impressed him, we were in the living room and I was sitting at the piano and he said, so just, I mean, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but what would your approach be? I mean, musically, what do you think would be, you know, something in that, you know, in, in that genre? And so I said, well, maybe something like this. So I played this piece of music and he got his eyes open. He said, oh my God, that's exactly, what is that? And I said, that's the theme for Chicken Thing. I wrote it last night. And so he said, really? And I said, yeah, that's, that's the theme for Chicken Thing. And he still played coy. It, wasn't, it took about a day and he called me and he said, I want you to do the movie. And um, it turned out to be this phenomenon that won 30 awards around the world, uh, including a Student Academy Award uh, he got picked up by CAA right away as director. I got picked up by Triad Artists, which eventually bought William Morris. And then I became a William Morris client. And so, you know, five years of doing all these television themes, and it was one 12 minute UCLA graduate film that got me a major agent. That's amazing. Now, now so what year is this? That was 1986. So, all right, so now we have, we have to sort of truncate 
our timeline here, which is fine. So you and Patrick, I'm going to go back in time a little bit. So 1984, for a different movie, Patrick um, came to you, as we, we talked about earlier, with a, a couple of chords. It was a right. C to E minor, if I remember right. Right, C to E minor. C to E minor. And I won't embarrass myself with one of those right now. But, <laughs> um, but a C to an E minor. He has some lyrics. You add, you add something. He questions you. You say, just do it. And then let, let's. Right. But, but then we moved it out musically from there. And I said, it's got to get off those chords. So that's when we started working on the, um, you know, the, the chorus, pre-chorus. And when we realized that She's Like the Wind was the hook, yeah. that it can be repeated, you know, the just a fool to believe I have anything she needs, bling, She's Like the Wind. That's when it really struck us that we were onto something. And uh, when we finished the writing of it, then we did a great demo of it with him singing it. Uh, I programmed all the synthesizer parts and the drums, brought in a guitarist friend. But then Wendy, who was this great singer, did some background vocals and then did this kind of interplay improv duet with him at the end of the song, which ended up final version as well. You know what I liked? And again, because I don't know that much about Patrick. Um, what's the second line you just read us? She's a fool to believe or... Uh, uh, just a fool to believe I have anything she needs. She's like the wind. His phrasing, I loved. Yeah. You know, there was, it, was, there was, it was a little bit staccato. And what drives me crazy when you get a singer with a good voice who doesn't understand that it also needs to be percussive sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and it should have some creativity in its cadence. He had that in there. It's just, you know, again, I was, I was sort of dissecting it in my mind as I was listening, because I, you know, in, you know, just growing up in the '80s, um, I'm 57, and I just thought of him as an actor and a dancer. And oftentimes, when you see the actors or actor dancers sing, they don't appreciate um, uh, the percussiveness that they can use their vocals for. And he did, right? I just like the way. They could sort of use, they'll speed up a word, then they'll slow down a word. And, and he did a nice job with that. I don't know if that was yeah. personal. Yeah, he played, he played Danny Zuko on Broadway in Greece, which has <laughs> a lot of that type of thing where you have to phrase it right. Yeah. And, um, uh, and you're dancing and you're singing at the same time. So it's, uh, uh, but he was, he, he was good. He did it. And I was there through the vocal, the, the final vocal session uh, at Michael Lloyd's studio. Michael Lloyd produced the version for the record. And, um, you know, this is before the eight days of auto-tune or anything like that. And it was not like this two-day slog to get a proper vocal put together. It was, you know, just like a normal vocal session. Wow. So so yeah. what, what happens to your life? So you're clear, you're successful at this point. You know, you're, you're getting works. And I know you wrote it in 84, but then it hits with Dirty Dancing a little later because I think you wrote it for a different movie, right? Yes, we, we wrote it to pitch to a movie called Grandview USA. And thank God they didn't use it in that film. They yeah. rejected it. So it, the demo sat around for a couple of years and then he played it for the producers of um, Dirty Dancing and they loved it. Um, but the weird thing was, you know, by this point I'd been, picked up by triad artists. Right. Um, uh, Patrick, or Buddy, by coincidence, was also with triad as an actor. So oh. now we're at, we're at the same agency. And he called me from North Carolina, where they were shooting part of Dirty Dancing. And he said, hey, I played the demo. They want to use it in the film. But it wasn't that exciting to me, because the word on the street about the movie was, it's a little low-budget movie right. that most people said, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's awful. It's, it's going to be, uh, and so the, the word was, it's going to be in the theaters for one week and then go straight to home video. Right. And that would be the end of it. So I, because it's, it's, a, it, it, it became huge, but it feels like a small movie, you know, Even as wonderful it, as it is. Yeah. I mean, the, the production values were beautiful and the soundtrack was great. But they did it on a on a relatively low budget for the time, right. and it's um, um, so you know to me in 1986 when we're recording the 
the final version for the soundtrack, it was like, okay, you know, I'm making a couple of thousand dollars from the license for it. Uh, that was the other thing that was great because uh, Buddy and I were with the same agency. I said to him, I said, let's make my, uh, let's have my music agent make the deal for us because if we come at them as a block, yeah. we'll have more leverage. So he agreed to that. And um, we got 100% ownership of all the, uh, the publishing and everything. So we, uh, which turned out to be an incredible boon uh, later on. Because yeah. um, I still own my half of the publishing now with Lisa, his widow. And um, so, uh, but I remember it was funny at the, at the recording session at Michael's studio uh, at his house, Beverly Hills, Michael Lloyd, uh, he'd assembled this great group of studio musicians. It was like Paul Lyme on drums, Lawrence Juber on guitar, who was from uh, Paul McCartney and Wings, wow. um, Dennis Belfield on bass. I mean, just great players. Uh, and um, so Michael, whom I met already at this point, walked up to me and he said, do you know what we're doing today? And I said, yeah, we're recording She's Like the Wind. And he said, no, we are recording a major hit song, Mark My Words. And I looked at him, you know, and I, you know, having been in the business already a long time by this point, I looked at him and I said, will you call my mother in New York and tell her this? Because I don't think she's convinced I can make a living at this. Oh, that's so, so we're, we're laughing. And, but, you know, a year later, when the movie came out and everything just went nuts. I remember I said to him, how did you know that? He says, I just knew that this soundtrack was gonna be a smash. So it was, it was pretty wild. So it was weird because Chicken Thing became this phenomenon. I get picked up by the agency. Then we record the, the final version of She's Like the Wind. But then it was another almost a year until the movie came out. So, the movie came out in August of 87, and uh, it was completely off my radar by that point. Um, because, you know, of, yeah, it, it's what people were, were saying about it. And um, uh, as a matter of fact, they released the soundtrack a few weeks before the film came out, and the soundtrack absolutely tanked. Time of My Life was the first single, and it just dropped. But then when the movie came out, they re-released the soundtrack and Time of My Life and both very quickly went to number one. Oh, that's crazy. So yeah, it was what crazy. happens to your life? What happens to your brain when all this happens? What happens to your heart? Like your whole being, what happens to you when you go from being successful to being stratospherically successful? Yeah, and, and in an area that I didn't predict. I mean, in, in the songwriting arena uh, uh it was a really strange time because wendy and i had been together for seven and a half years uh, and we you know moved to la from new york together we drove across country together and we had dogs together and our great apartment and cars joint bank accounts and all this and then we split up three weeks before the single was released oh my god and she's singing on the single <sighs> right and right. so and she was also in the video and the video by the way if you look it up the black and white video was directed by david fincher who became a monster director he did um benjamin button he did social network um all these tremendous films wow. uh, so he directed the video but so it was this weird mix of you know i'm just in this strange frame of mind because wendy and i have broken up and you know, she was the only woman, you know, in my life for seven and a half, almost eight years. And then when the song became a hit, I'm hearing it on the radio and she's singing. And a matter of fact, one time she and I were having an argument on the phone, like a really knockdown, drag out argument. And the song came on my neighbor's radio oh. and I'm hearing it across the driveway from in my apartment. And about three bars before she started singing, I said to her, I said, I have to hang up. And so she said, why? And I said, because my life has become a B movie and I've provided my own underscore for it. And that, 
So, which was true. I mean, my business was providing dramatic music. Yeah. So, sure I am. I provided my own dramatic music for this argument. So it was, it was very, but it still was this tremendous. I still remember the first time I heard it on my car radio. It was about 11 o'clock at night at the crest of Laurel Canyon. Okay. Into the valley. And it came on a station from Anaheim that I could pick up. And I pulled over to the side of the road and sat there, you know, and I'd heard my music in movie theaters and on TV and all that. But there's something so iconically American about the randomness of hearing it on a, on a radio when it just pops up out of nowhere. And you're, I was, I was just, I was stunned. And, yeah. and then of course the grounded because it started selling millions of records like right off the bat. When I finally received my first platinum record for it, it was triple platinum. And that was just after, you know, a number of months. Crazy. So it, it was, it was insane. It was, it was insane. And, uh, and then, of course, for, for Buddy, he now is the, the biggest star in the world. And, um, you know, he, that was very funny for him. And we did a thing where he called me up one night on New Year's Eve or the day of New Year's Eve. And he said of 1987, and he said, I want to see how famous I've become. I want to see if I can get the three of us into Spago and for dinner tonight, which was the hottest restaurant. And I said, wait, let me call first. So I called and they, you know, blew me off just saying, because I, I didn't mention his name. And uh, I said, so there's no way that three people could get into for dinner tonight. He says, you're not listening to me, sir. If you'd like to make a reservation for another evening, I'd be happy to take care of that. Click. So then I called Buddy and I said, okay, you're on. Two minutes later, he called me, he said, we're in seven o'clock. Well, oh, that is great. Yeah. That is, yeah, they... I, I was I ate there once I think in the nineties and I, Wolfgang's wife used to be the hostess there right wasn't she? Yeah, I think so. It, it's yeah. uh, it it was just it was uh, it was it was crazy. But I remember the three of us walking into the restaurant and all the heads turning in his direction. I think it, it's it's something. While he was alive, everyone realized how talented he is um, and was. But I think even after he passed. I just see so much on social media of folks really looking back and saying as great as he as he is and was, even bigger and better than, than we had realized. And I, I learned tonight how three-dimensional uh, he was as an artist. I didn't know he was right. a musician. Well, he was also the most naturally gifted athlete I'd ever seen. I mean, he did martial arts. He did a lot of his own stunts in Roadhouse. Uh, horseback riding, roping. Um, after the success of Dirty Dancing, we both bought houses up in Lake Arrowhead in the mountains, and we would take our boats out. You know, this is you know ridiculous, but I remember pulling him. Uh, he would water ski off the back of my boat, and and you know, of course, he'd throw down one ski and he'd start skiing on one ski and right, jump right. the lake and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, give me a break. You know, it's like. But it, it was really remarkable, um, uh, you know, they, just the, the raw talent that he had. Yeah, he's kind of a force of nature, I guess. And, yeah. And, yeah. and not on this earth for particularly long, and he left a huge imprint. You know? Yes, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't think he truly appreciated how, what an impact he had until, unfortunately, he was sick. He did right. a show, uh, a special um, uh, for Stand Up to Cancer. And when he came out on stage, there was a two minute standing ovation. And I could see watching it that he was stunned, that he, he just, he didn't expect it. Uh, so it, it was, you know, he was huge and he still is. I mean, there's, there's a rap word where they, it's, I, I, he, he sways him or something like that. That's used, been used in rap songs that refers to him. Oh, that's really neat. So, uh, it's funny. I, I, I love when this happens. I, 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 I'll look down at my clock. And I'm like, We're pushing an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> it flies. So what I want to do now, and, and it's funny because I tell everyone at the beginning, we shoot for a half hour, but sometimes we get those shows that are just so interesting and natural and we keep going. So I'm, I'm going to jump forward 30-ish years, right? Um, so what are you doing these days? What what are you doing to fulfill your musical, artistic, and creative needs? 
Well, it, music has always been there. I moved to Nashville at okay. the, the end of 2000. I started coming to Nashville on the recommendation of Michael Lloyd, the record right. producer. Uh, I played him some new songs I was working on. He said, you should start going to Nashville. And I said, Nashville? I don't know anybody in Nashville. And he said, well, BMI is based there. You're BMI. William Morris has an office there. Um, I can set you up with some meetings. And uh, so I came to Nashville uh, in the late 90s to write with people and had a great time and liked the town and the different pace of life. But I was still very busy with scoring work in TV movies at that point and from like 95 through 99. Um, but then I started thinking about, you know, do I want to stay in L.A.? Um, I like Nashville. I'd broken up out of a relationship and I was like, oh, dating in L.A. again, I might as well shoot myself. So uh, um, and I was living in Malibu by this point in a great place overlooking the ocean and the mountains the other way. Love and one day, one day, a real estate agent showed up at my house unsolicited and said, do you want to sell your house? And I said, you know, you're catching me on a funny weekend. And so he told me what he thought I could get for it, which was a lot more than I had paid for it. And I knew the exchange rate to real estate in Nashville, which was much cheaper. Oh, yeah. yeah. Five days later, the house was sold. And seven weeks later, I was driving across country to Nashville. So it was fate. And Nashville ended up being an interesting journey by itself because I ended up unexpectedly getting very involved in the arts community here. First on the board of Nashville Film Festival in 2004, actually through a film that I scored that Patrick and Lisa did. It was kind of an adaptation of the theater piece that I talked about earlier. So um, that was in the Nashville Film Festival uh, and uh, Buddy and Lisa came to Nashville uh, for the festival and wow. stayed with me actually, uh, with their assistant, uh, Sherry. And um, uh, I ended up winning the best music award at the festival. And I was also asked to do a panel on film music. And when I found out that Buddy and Lisa were coming, I said, do you wanna be on this panel with me? We can talk about the collaborative aspect. And the panel was a huge hit. And then the, the board approached me and said, would you like to join the board? And I was like, I've never been on an arts board. This will be interesting. So then by 2007, I was their board president. I, 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 did, I made a mistake and I showed organizational skill. So, uh, yep. so they, you know, like point him. So then word started, yeah, I was asked to join another arts board for a great uh, chamber music, cutting edge chamber music group. Um, after I went through a program here called Leadership Music, which is one of a kind to Nashville. And then I was invited to join their board of directors and then I joined the board of directors of Nashville Opera. And then I became the president of the board of leadership music. Then I became the president of the board of, oh. uh, of the opera. And currently I'm president of the opera guild, which is kind of their fundraising education wing. And then the weirdest thing was that I got very involved in my community in Oak Hill, where I live just south of downtown, which has its own um, city government. I, I, was asked to join the planning commission, which was hysterical. And I said, I'm a college dropout songwriter and composer. I know nothing about stormwater runoff. And so they said, well, you'll learn, we need. And then in 2016, I ran for commissioner and I won. So I served four years as, as a commissioner, uh, two of those years as the vice mayor of the city of Oak Hill. So, uh, so to, this, to this day, when I go to a political event, which I go to and my, if I pre-registered, my name tag says the Honorable Stacy Weidlitz. Oh, that is hysterical. Yeah. But creatively, also a, a funny thing happened. In 2015, a friend of mine organized a songwriter workshop in uh, Tuscany at a villa outside of uh, Florence. And I looked at the itinerary and I said, this is great. And the leader of the workshop is one of my favorite songwriters, Gretchen Peters, who wrote Independence Day and uh, bust the St. Cloud and all these just beautiful songs. And I thought, you know, I can learn something, especially about writing songs by myself, lyrics and music together to, you know, but what I, what happened unexpectedly was 
I bought a new camera for that trip and I started taking pictures in black and white of people. And uh, a photographer, a friend of mine saw the pictures on Facebook and said to me, he said, you know, these are really good. You need to keep doing that wherever you go. So I went to Cuba with a, a political group actually. And I took pictures there, then Washington DC, then um, New Orleans, DC again, then back to uh, Italy, then London. Then in 2019, it was London and Berlin. And um, uh, I started printing out some of the pictures and everybody along the way was just saying, you know, you need to do something with this. And one um, artistic director for a venue here in town said, you need your own show. You need a one man show. And I said, that's crazy. And so she said, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm serious. So uh, she said, you need it on Fifth Avenue of the Arts, which is the big gallery street okay. in Nashville. And I said, well, I know one of the gallery owners there, uh, Ann Brown, uh, who owned probably the, the biggest and best gallery uh, called the Arts Company. And so she said, show the stuff to Ann. So I did, by this time I had a portfolio put together and Ann just looked at me and said, this is incredible. I'm gonna do a show. And so we did a, a, a one-man show of my work in 2019 that we called Second Act. And, um, and then pieces started selling from the show, which astounded me. Uh, and it's a thing now. I have gallery representation. Um, I started submitting to various you know, curation sites. And I just won two international awards for uh, two of my photos. Um, that's now the, the, the site, which is based in Stockholm, sent me a note saying only one percent, less than 1% of photographers who, who submit win these awards. So it's, uh, it, it's just a whole other thing that is, I just never expected. And you just, you know, it just shows that um, it doesn't matter what your age is. It's how you, you know, find another means of expression. And because um, it turned out that street photography, which is what I do, it's capturing a story in a moment. And a song is three and a half minutes, but it's capturing a story in three and a half minutes. So it's, it's very similar. It's a, it's a theme that I've seen with a number of our guests on Guitar Tales. We just had a, a guy, Vic Ramos, on and it, the, the interview was hysterical because I'm interviewing him. He says, well, when I started painting, I'm like, wait, I thought you built guitars. And he says, oh, yeah. And, he, and it turns out he's acting in something else. Right. He's, right. A, he's a carpenter. And I, I think the artistic mind will periodically switch mediums. And I, I, I suspect, and, and you can probably confirm this, I think it sort of recharges the creative juices when you do a lot in one medium, right? And then yeah. you have this creative energy, but maybe expressing it elsewhere is, is refreshing on some level, I would think. Yeah, and there's, you know, it, there's immediate gratification with photography as well, where you can look at it and then other people can see it. And, um, and then, you know, doing the show was tremendous because um, the, the night that, the night before the public opening, I had a private opening with about 75 people there and I actually performed a song that I wrote in Italy at that first workshop, which related to the photography as well. And then, um, you know, it, it just becomes this uh, process. And, and it's just really fun. When you do street photography, you have to be hyper aware of your surroundings. And right. it's a zen experience. You get out, I call it the anti-selfie. Instead of you being self-obsessed, you're watching everybody else. Well, I love that. And it's 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 really a um, very almost relaxing in a in a way. This is wonderful. Um, it I don't know you, and I'm yet I'm happy for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If anybody wants to see, they can go to uh, StacyWidelitz.com. Now, just now let's spell it because it's two. We talked before the show. It's two syllables, but there's an e floating around in there. Right. Yeah. So it's S T A C Y. W I D E L I T Z, all one word, dot com. And that's a mixture of photography and music and stories about both. Uh, and then also my Instagram page, which I use only for black and white photography. Oh, wow. 
is um, just at Stacy Weidlitz, you know, so, again, one word. And what we'll do too is as we start promoting the show, um, I know I'll, I'll post both of those when I post it. Oh, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm so excited to post this show. This is, this has been so much fun. Well, thanks. Yeah. You, it's, uh, it, it's always fun to go back through those moments and something new always comes up. Um, and we, we never did get to Ray Manzarek, but we'll get to that maybe another time. So oh, yeah. uh, I would absolutely do another show with you because again, I'm looking at my notes and then I'm, I'm looking at the clock, you know, and I'm thinking yeah. I could do a part two. That's what I was uh, thinking as we were chatting because there, there's so much ground in here we can cover, but Oh, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Guitar Tales. I've truly had a fun time with you. Sure. And even though I, I play piano, I, I do own a couple of guitars. So, uh, you know, I, I always say one of my dear friends is one of the great guitarists in the world, Jeff Skunk Baxter. And uh, Jeff has this thing where uh, if I'll mention a guitarist, you say, oh, he's a guitar owner. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's so I, I'm not a guitarist. I'm a guitar owner. Oh, we did something similar. We had Alex uh, Scooby on the show, who's an actor out in L.A., but we got him because he used to play guitar in a band in Jersey, so that was enough. That gave him enough street cred. We had a right. producer on who owns a guitar. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I, I just saw uh, Jeff um, about three months ago. Uh, he was uh, playing a party, a party concert at the Ryman Auditorium for Steve Cropper's 80th birthday. And so that was... Yeah, he's so uh, and actually also when I ran for office in Oak Hill, Steve Cropper lives about five minutes away from me in Oak Hill. And one of the first checks my treasurer got, uh, my treasurer called me, and said, who's Stephen J. Cropper? Oh, that's great. And so I said, well, that's Steve Cropper. Why? And he says he just contributed a thousand dollars to your campaign. So I was like, oh, that's great. That's, that's that just wonderful. Cool. So, yeah. Super cool. Well, yeah. Thank you again. I had a lot of fun. And everyone, uh, join us for every episode you can find of Guitar Tales. You can find this on, and I'll screw up the list, um, YouTube, Facebook Watch, Instagram for posting. Um, let's see, we got Amazon, we have Audible, we have Spotify, and I forget what else. But you can find us in all sorts of great places. Everyone have a great night and stay safe.